and I started talking about Long Creek Juvenile Detention Center. Um, when I was at Cumberland County, they would send these juveniles with us when they got to be too much at Long Creek. When they got to be too much, it was because they got raped, you know, or abused, you know, they, and Long Creek was always in the paper for breaking a kid's arm, choking them out, sexual assaults, you know, mass suicides. And they sent this little girl with us who was 17 years old doing 18 months on a burglary. You know, she was, you know, a foster kid. Her mom wasn't around and she was being raped by high ranking officers. So they sent her with us. And on Christmas, just to mess with this kid, they told her she was going back for her last two weeks. Well, she flipped out and slit her throat that night. You know, that was better than going back there. You know, thank God she lived. But, you know, this is what's happening. You know, predators flock to these institutions for employment because they know women like me aren't going to be believed. They know children like her aren't going to be believed. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes, we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. And today we are speaking with Elizabeth Mikotowicz. She is an artist entrepreneur, and an activist. Elizabeth, could you please introduce yourself? Let people know a little bit about you, please. Absolutely. My name's Elizabeth. Um, I grew up in Maine. I was born in Illinois and adopted to Brooklyn, New York. And then my parents got uh, jobs at the University of Maine when I was like two and pretty much lived there ever since. Um, I'm actually down south now, but um, five years ago, I was painting murals as a federal inmate. And since my release, I've had my own art shows. Um, I've launched an environmentally friendly clothing brand, and I've gotten some bills passed working with some legislatures up in Maine, you know, that protect the people instead of corporations and corrupt institutions. It's a big monster that we're fighting nowadays, and a oh, lot of people, yes. they just don't want to address it, and they'd rather put their head in the sand, but you're standing up there, you're being a true activist, and you speak up, you know, and a lot of people need that instilled into them. Let's yeah. start when you entered the penitentiary. What was Absolutely. that like? And... What what brought you there? Well, what you know, I grew up with a really great family, and the prosecutor actually tried to use it against me. He was like, she has no excuse, you know, for breaking the law and, you know, this, that, the other thing. And there's so much stigma, you know, towards addiction and mental health. And, like, I was never an addict. I was never into drugs. But I got in my early 20s, 
you know, late teens, early 20s, I got with a really abusive partner who assaulted me to the point my skull was showing. And when I went to the hospital, I found out I was pregnant that day. And um, they had to sew the skin, the muscle back, then the skin back. And the brain damage was so bad, I started getting seizures. And I'd go deaf and blind for moments at a time. And um, finding out I was pregnant, you know, at first I took the opiates. But once they sent me to the pain clinic, I was like, wait a minute, I don't want to be on this regularly. Like, I watched my entire community go down the toilet because of opioids within a matter of 10 years, like mostly everybody I knew was fighting dope sickness. And, you know, they were handing out Oxy, Percocet, Vicodin, all this stuff out, you know, like candy and pushing it on us. So when I tried to, you know, say, no, I don't want to be on this. And I, I believe this doctor was one of those whale doctors that, you know, was in bed with big pharma who got, you know, money thrown at him for every patient, you know, he got hooked on this stuff, basically. They literally threatened me with child protective services when I tried to say, I don't want to be on this. They said my blood pressure kept skyrocketing and the amount of pain I was in was endangering my baby. And if I didn't do what they said, they, they'd call the state on me for endangering my baby. And, you know, I was young, so I was scared. And, you know, I also noticed that because I was on state insurance and I was no longer on my parents' private insurance, I was treated very differently. And, you know, I didn't realize there was this, you know, class system at the time. And I didn't know how to advocate for myself. Like now I, I would totally stood up for them and be like, go ahead, call CPS. Like, tell me what they say. But, you know, back then I was still a scared kid. And so, you know, obviously I took it and, you know, there's so much stigma around addiction, like big pharma wants you to blame the addict and 70% of, you know, opioid addicts started out by going to their doctor. Like my generation millennials, right. we, we trusted our doctors. We, we went to the doctors when we had anxiety or, you know, depression, and we got pumped full of all of these pills that are really addictive. And, you know, then they profited off us when we went to prison. They profited off our kids when they trafficked them in the state. And, you know, this is what America is now. You know, it's just we're doing like 80 percent of the pharmaceuticals and we're only five percent of the world. I mean, it's a very scary number. And um, so, you know, the abuse got worse. Uh, my situation got worse. Like this man would trap me in the bathroom and literally torture me for hours. Like I would, it would start out with me begging for my life. And by the end, I would be begging him to kill me. Like, just get it over with. I can't take this anymore. And, you know, I finally went to Spruce Run, the battered women's shelter um, in Bangor, Maine. And at first they called me a liar because I wasn't crying. When I was eight months pregnant, he held a knife to my face and said, one more tear rolls down your cheek. I'm gonna cut your face off so nobody finds you attractive. So after that, I didn't cry. Like it was like stone cold, like shell shock where, you know, I just wouldn't cry because I didn't wanna get my face cut off. And this shelter used that against me. They said, well, other women come in here and they're crying, so we don't believe you. So I went and I got the police records and I went and I got the hospital records. Then they did a complete 180 and they said, well, your injuries are too extensive and your situation is so dangerous. It puts the other women in the shelter in danger. So we can't help you. They had two beds open. And one of the girls that got the bed, the guy didn't even hit her. He kicked her car. And I'm not trying to, you know, devalue that, you know, that's absolute destruction of property is domestic violence. Absolutely. 
but compared to my situation where I would have died if I hadn't gone to the hospital, like you're really not going to help me. So, you know, and this is a problem with victim-based shelters. You know, a friend of mine tried to get into the human trafficking shelter and they turned her away because she wouldn't snitch her pimp out. And they said, well, the only way we're going to help you is if you give us this collar, basically. So you're extorting victims safety, you know, for them to do law enforcement's job for you. Like that is not their job. That's law enforcement's job, you know, and these pimps, they, they get these women's, you know, social security numbers, IDs, you know, they find out where their family is. They get these women cornered. So, you know, that it's, this is, it's the problem with victim-based shelters where they just extort the victims. Like you're already getting funding, you know, to help these women and help these victims. And, you know, you just want more, see what you can get. And so after yeah. that, um, I made a deal with my father. If they wouldn't help me, I would sign temporary guardianship to my kids over, you know, because if they show, I was, I was going to seizures, you know, with my 14 month old daughter running around. So I was no longer a safe caregiver. Like I was waking up going, I'm going to wake up to a tragedy eventually because I don't even know how long I'm out for. And um, the responsible so, thing to do. Right. Yeah. And it was awful. And that was like rock bottom for me as a parent, because, you know, like to come to terms with the fact, like my daughter is not safe with me and there's nothing I can do about it, you know? And so basically after that drug dealers helped me. You know, they gave me places to stay. They gave, you know, they gave me drugs to sell. They protected me. You know, they also took advantage of my situation, you know, at, if you know, depending on how you look at it. But, you know, I don't even know where I would be if they hadn't. And then eventually in 2011, I caught drug charges. And um, I did seven months in the county jail, you know, for basalt. And it was funny because it, the stuff was legal at the time. Like I stopped selling crack. I stopped selling heroin. I stopped selling all that stuff. I was like, this stuff's legal. How bad could it be? It's being sold in stores. Well, little did I know that all of Europe had banned it two years prior. And the American government knew that. They didn't ban it over here. All of a sudden, it started coming over here. And I'm not trying to launch some huge conspiracy theory or anything like that. But two years prior to all of these synthetic drugs, like the synthetic mollies and, you know, all the strands of basalt, you know, we got in like $7 trillion in debt with China. And all of these synthetic drugs were coming from China. And the American government knew this. And they let us all get addicted to it anyway. And then they wrote a retroactive law called the analog substance law. And that's what I, that's what the feds picked me up on. So basically it's saying, yes, it was legal, but it has um, characteristics of illegal substances. So we're going to put you on jail for it. I had stopped selling drugs. I stopped, you know, pushing everything. Like I was done. You know, the county jail was enough for me. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to put my kids through this. Like, I need to get myself together. In 2013, the feds picked it up and made it conspiracy. So I literally went to jail for the same bus twice. There is no such thing as double jeopardy when it comes to drug dealers. You know, they like to say that. They even said it in the paper because the feds are a different jurisdiction than the state. It's okay that they arrested us all again. And um, my first week at Somerset County Jail, um, I witnessed an entire pot of women get stripped out because a male sergeant wanted a list of who shaved their vaginas and who didn't. Those that did were punished. Now, this is, they only did this to the women. 
They were not stripping the men out to see what their grooming preferences were. And, you know, like people were pissed and they eventually threw out all of the write-ups, but it's like, what you, you want to see the evidence? Like you, like you all taking bets on like, whether, you know, we have a landing strip or not, like this is bordering on sexual assault. And of course, nothing happened to the officers that did it. Um, but yeah, I watched a woman go into labor at Penobscot County jail. And the only reason they took her to the emergency room is because we all flipped out and threatened to riot. And they told this woman, if this is a false alarm and you wasted our time and money, you're going in the hole. They threatened her with solitary confinement if it was a false labor. Now, for all the women out there who have had babies, like, you know what Braxton Hicks are. You know, like, your, especially your first time having a baby, like, you know, like, you have false labor alarms. It happens. And for to be threatened with, you know, a punishment like that, you know, a yeah. punishment that literally slows your brain down from the lack of stimulation and it makes everything overwhelming when you get out. Like, this is what they're doing to people in there. And it's just, it's horrible. Um, at Somerset County, I was forced to strip in front of cameras under duress of being maced and extracted. Now, when they extract you, they come in 10, 12 deep, all suited up in, you know, SWAT gear. They have electric shock shields, you know, batons, mace. They have these canisters um, that they will throw in your cell, and it's a bomb. It's a gas bomb, basically, and it's chemically designed to take the oxygen out of your throat. So, you know, and it goes through the vents. So all of the other inmates that weren't doing anything wrong, they're getting hit with it as well. And um, so that's what I was up against if I said no to these people. And they, it's illegal to have any cameras inside of these cells. But, and it's funny because the captain lied to their commissioner and said, we don't have cameras in these cells. And it's a total lie. And I was like, if that's the case, then give me my paperwork. They're still refusing to give me my paperwork to this day. Um, when I went to Alderson Federal Prison, when I finally got sentenced um, 16 months later, um, I filed a PREA complaint. That's called the Prison Rape Elimination Act. So anything sexual goes under PREA. When they got the complaint back, they wouldn't even allow me to hold it, to read it myself. They, they read it to me and Somerset County admitted to everything I was complaining about, but they deemed it unfounded. And that's how they stop it from going to an outside source. So all of these institutions get to investigate their own crimes. Yeah. Enough said. Like, and this is a problem. They should not be allowed to investigate their own crimes and complaints because they just sweep it under the rug. And you know, then I found out that an outside source is supposed to come interview the inmate anytime a PREA complaint is filed. This never happens. It didn't happen when we had an officer pulling our pants open to see if we had underwear on. It didn't happen you know, in this situation. It didn't happen in any sexual you know, offensive situation that I witnessed in there, never once. And um, so, when I was at Alderson, I go, all right, give me the copy of it. They said, no, we don't want it on the compound. I said, okay, that's fine. I'll send it home. No, we don't do that. So they're telling me that I couldn't have a copy of my own complaint. So when you get yeah. out, you have a hundred days to file an actual, an official complaint, you know, against an institution. The first thing they ask is, where's the PREA complaint? Where's the paperwork? Where's the outcry at the time? Well, there was one, but they wouldn't give me a copy of it. I went to the Freedom of Information Act. I went to the DOJ. None of them could find this complaint. 
And then at Alderson, after I got out, the captain and four of his subordinates all got convicted of raping and stalking inmates and tampering with Korea evidence. So I wasn't even the only one they did this to. And um, I requested my paperwork from Somerset County and they said, we already gave you the paperwork. So if you want another copy of it, you're gonna have to get a lawyer to subpoena it. I got a lawyer and they wouldn't respond. And they, the lawyer said, you can't subpoena anything without an open case and you can't open a case without the paperwork. So by law, these jails have to give you the paperwork, but there's no consequence if they don't. And this is one of the bills that I'm working on because there needs to be a consequence. They cannot keep getting away with this, you know, like $500 a day for every day they stonewall an inmate. Like that, that, that's what I'm shooting for basically, because there has to be something when they don't follow the laws that they love to en enforce on people. And um, yeah, so at, when I got to prison, it just, it's, it's so much, it's so much worse. Like, the feds will protect yeah. you when you're in county jail, but the second you get into their custody and you're already sentenced, I mean, the BOP is notorious for covering stuff up. I mean, I mean, it's all across the nation. 60 inmates have roasted to death in Texas since June because of these extreme heats and they don't have climate control. 70% of the jails in Texas do not have climate control. And these are old brick metal buildings. So it's basically an oven. I mean, like they, they fry eggs on the ground and this is, these are people, you know, a lot of them are nonviolent and there's so much stigma on inmates. It's, you know, I've had conservative women tell me if you don't want to get raped by cops and don't go to prison, like just say you're okay with certain groups of people being abused and harmed because that's what you mean. You know, this, it, it, don't stand up there and claim freedom and justice for all because it's not, it's non-existent. We have more prisons than we do colleges. And I'm sure people are wondering why, you know, we have such a high crime rate and crime is profitable to them. Bottom line, these prisons are one big money pit. A hospital saves $350,000 a year contracting their linen to be washed by inmates instead of having regular Americans, um, you know, be paid, you know, minimum wage, not even a living wage, just minimum wage. These corporations are so greedy. They do not want to pay us even a minimum wage. They would rather lock us all up and put us in prison and then make us work for pennies a day. We were making $5 and 25 cents a month in prison, not a week, not a day, a month for 40 hours a week. So, you know, and it's just, it's, it's disgusting. And over the pandemic, before the pandemic started, we had three empty houses or three empty properties for every homeless man, woman, and child. Now there's 29 empty properties for every homeless man, woman, and child. And they're criminalizing homelessness across the board. You see in all these big cities, you can't even feed a homeless person now without getting fined. So what's the next step? Yeah. They're going to lock all these people up and put them to work. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack, Elizabeth, but <laughs> I can tell you 100%, everything you said is 100% spot on. You know, I was raised in a family full of criminal minds. Many of them went to penitentiary for some bad things. And those stories resonate well because I've had to hear it for 
40 plus years. And the sad thing is the inmate, they reach out to the family member and, you know, at Christmas, Thanksgiving, you know, these holiday seasons, you can send right. the inmate a package. And it costs quite a bit to send these packages. And what the inmate receives for the amount that you pay is yeah. just mind-blowing. And oh, a yeah. lot of this gets shoved under the rug because, oh, you're dealing with a criminal. Well, yeah. you're dealing with a human being, first right. of all, with issues and problems that need to be worked out. And right. if we don't have people like you out there fighting and advocating for this, we're in big, big trouble. We already are because, you know, it's compounded so much that a lot of people don't realize where to start. Right. Let's talk about the advocacy work and how you approach getting laws changed. How did that come about for you and what was the process like? Well, um, it's I had completely let all of this go, you know, with Somerset County and everything. And then there was an article in the paper that came out about them, how they were refusing to give the media officers disciplinary records and freedom of the press. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then it came out that this certain sergeant, Dawn Poulin, um, she told an inmate to kill themselves, and they had to cut that inmate down from a suicide attempt. She had done the same thing to me when I was there. And so I was like, you know what? I want my paperwork. And that's when I started requesting it and all that stuff. Like, because, and then when they finally did hand over the officer's disciplinary records, they, they left all of the information blank. So they'd say officer so-and-so was, you know, suspended for three days, but they wouldn't say why. So you don't know what they did. Yeah. And it's just yeah. how they're covering it up. And um, how I got involved with the legislatures, there was a cop up in Callis who gave a 16-year-old girl a bunch of drugs to give to her mother who was paying him for these drugs with sex acts. And so he was extorting her for her addiction. And um, I called the DA up, like, why didn't you charge him with a sex crime? He's a 30-year officer who's well-versed in addiction, and he's extorting this woman. And as a woman yeah. who's been to prison, the only thing I'm thinking, if a cop were to come on to me, is what am I going to jail for when I say no? And he, I'm like, you know, correctional yeah. officers, there's no such thing as consent, even if the inmate is the one who initiates it. Because we can't say no. We're not allowed to say no to these people. And um, he's like, you made a lot of good points, but the way the law is written, it's technically consent. But you can write to the main state legislatures and they can you know, amend these bills. So I started, I made a proposal and I sent it to all these main state legislatures. And some of them actually listened to me. And then they told me, you know, you should come speak at you know, some of these hearings. And, you know, you're a good voice and, you know, you, you, you say this well, you know, so people understand it and really, you know, grasp what's going on. You know, we don't know these things because we're not there. We don't see it. And um, so I started going to the Democratic meetings and just, you know, telling them, basically telling them what they're doing wrong. And I started talking about Long Creek Juvenile Detention Center. Um, 
when I was at Cumberland County, they would send these juveniles with us when they got to be too much at Long Creek. When they got to be too much, it was because they got raped, you know, or abused, you know, they, and Long Creek was always in the paper for breaking a kid's arm, choking them out, sexual assaults, you know, mass suicides. And they sent this little girl with us who was 17 years old doing 18 months on a burglary. You know, she was, you know, a foster kid. Her mom wasn't around and she was being raped by high ranking officers. So they sent her with us. And on Christmas, just to mess with this kid, they told her she was going back for her last two weeks. Well, she flipped out and slit her throat that night. You know, that was better than going back there. You know, thank God she lived. But, you know, this is what's happening. You know, predators flock to these institutions for employment because they know women like me aren't going to be believed. They know children like her aren't going to be believed. And, you know, that's a heavy point right there. Yes. And even Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine. Even if we are believed where it's viewed as, you know, you should be lucky that, you know, someone like that would want someone like you. That is literally the attitude we get. And we have such a misogynistic rape culture in the United States. Like, you know, 98% of rapists don't see the inside of the cell and only 96 and 96% don't even get arrested. So you have 4% only going in handcuffs not even getting convicted. And these are the people that should be in prison, but they're not. It's mostly drug addicts and people with mental health issues. And, you know, 70% of the women in prison, you know, just like me, they had some sort of domestic violence or sexual assault before they went to prison. We are the women that slipped through the cracks. You know, I had no intention on becoming a drug dealer. You know, it was, I was desperate. I had exhausted all other options and I didn't know what else to do. So, you know, these are your criminals. These are, you know, your masterminds of society that, you know, they want to demonize so much. You know, I'm not talking about your murderers and, you know, stuff like that. You know, that that is a small percentage of the inmate population. And um, yeah, so I, the other bill that I was working on, um, and it did get passed in the state of Maine, and it needs to get passed across America. Um, all, all jail facilities are now required to provide tampons and pads free of charge for women. Because before that, yeah. they only had these cheap pads, and women would make their own tampons and give themselves infections and get themselves sick because they were so desperate. And, you know, you could buy it on commissary if they had it. When they had it on commissary, they'd only have enough for maybe a quarter of the population. Oh, yeah, they only had enough for a quarter of the population. And then they jacked the price up triple what it would be out here. Like a package of ramen noodles. Yeah, it's another way they extort us. You know, and phone calls, you have to pay like $15 for, you know, however long. It's insane. They extort us at every turn. And, you know like a package of ramen noodles cost 20 cents out here at the time I was in prison. And in there, it cost a dollar 20. So they're jacking these prices up and it's not like we make a lot for, you know, and they wonder why people end up hustling in prison because you have to, yeah. like I was paying. And, and you know, Elizabeth, I want to, I want to cut in for a second about those phone calls. You know, you guys can make phone calls, but, a lot of the times, a lot of those inmates have to call collect. Yep. And that fee, I can tell you, that is expensive. 
and that's extortion. So I'm sorry to cut in, but I wanted to really highlight those phone calls because they're killing people. Yeah, they are. And, um, you know, with medical, I love this argument, how people are like, oh, prisoners get free medical care. I have watched so many people (laughs) die from very treatable things in there. Not to mention, you know, they'll tell you to drink more water and, you know, charge you $5 for a Band-Aid. I mean, it's, it's horrible. I mean, one girl broke her leg slipping on the ice because she was shoveling snow. That was her job. And by the time they brought her to the hospital, a real hospital, the bone had fused back together. So they had to re-break her leg. I mean, that is barbaric, you know, just torture what they put people through. I mean, and I watch, I don't know how many gallbladders go. I mean, I've watched women die. I've watched so many like couple year sentences for nonviolent crimes turn into death sentences because they just wouldn't treat these people. And 60% of the prison doctors in Alabama have lost their medical license. It is legal for prison doctor, yeah. for doctors who have lost their medical license to work at prisons and native clinics. Yeah, like they are crazy. still, they are still, you know, actively committing genocide against certain BIPOC groups. I met a handful of women in prison that had been sterilized against their will, and this was before Trump filled up the ice camps. And you heard about that happening to the refugee women. You know how they were sterilizing, you know, the migrants in there. They were doing this to American women. And after like the fourth woman I met, I realized not a single one of these women are white. You know, and now all of a sudden it's a great day for white lives with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Like they're not protesting abortion clinics in the hood. They're only doing this in white neighborhoods. Like th- this is, you know, this is an, a genocide thing. They're just being very low key yeah. about it. And, you know, Texas is known for that, for sterilizing black women against their will or without their knowledge, you know, scaring these women going, you have to have this surgery or you're going to die. And they don't totally understand what it is. And then they end up getting sterilized. And it's, it's just disgusting. Like I was under the illusion of white supremacy before I went to prison. Like I thought, okay, we had the civil rights movement. Now everything's good. And, you know, everything's equal. And land of the free and all that stuff. And then I went to prison and sought for what it really was. And, you know, it's, you know, the, once I read the paperwork, like if I wasn't a white woman, I probably would have gotten a much longer sentence than three years. And that, that doesn't sit well with me. Like I'm grateful I only got three years, but you know, it just, I don't like the fact that, you know, if I was black or brown or, you know, that's whatever right. like it it would have been a much longer sentence and i it's just disgusting to me um yeah where's the equality there right right uh, yeah it, it's horrendous you know and and there are so many horrific stories attached to any any institution you know you've went through volk rehab i'm going to talk a little bit about that with you and your journey there Let's move on to your clothing line because that came out of your stay at prison, which out of bad, there's always some sort of good if you can actually locate it and pick it out. Uh, I think that's really one of those key points in helping people recover and stop that recidivism rate. 
Right. Yeah, I started writing in jail because, you know, I learned that, you know, your brain literally slows down from the lack of stimulation. I'm like, that's not going to happen to me. And it, it happened to me anyways. But, you know, I would paint murals. I was hired by the prison. I had one of the highest paying jobs at Danbury. I got $57 a month for painting murals. And I would paint cups and take the back of notebooks, you know, and use that for canvas. And I would, you know, sell that stuff. Um, but once I got out, um, I had a couple art shows and I was trying to find a way to make money with my art. And I found this company called the galleries. They're, um, based out of Canada and they turn your art into this beautiful, environmentally friendly clothing brand. You know, it's very feminine. Like there's a couple masculine pieces, but it's, it's mostly for women and it comes in plus sizes. So it's very inclusive. Like I was really happy about that. Cause I'm just, I'm a stickler for inclusivity. Um, I do have some stuff to show you. Um, like this is one of my bags. So these so are my paintings. She's holding up a bag. It's a handbag with a horse on it. And it's yep. very awesome. I've got dresses, I've got bags, I've got pants, shirts, um, scarves, um, there's aprons, there's, there's towels, like there's all kinds of stuff. This is one of my placemats. Interesting. Oh, wow. A koi? Yep. Koi fish. And um, the cool thing is, is that one painting is on like several different clothing items. So you can like match a whole outfit. Like this is one of my huh. uh, neck neck scarves, scowls, and you can see um, all of the paintings are on uh, the tags as well. And I managed to get um, my brand sold in a couple of stores um, up in Maine and down in Texas. Um, yeah, but they've got like a lot of cool stuff. Like this is like a shawl and it, yeah, it's like really good for winter. And yeah, that's the koi fish again. And so, yeah, I have, you know, this website and, you know, I go to vendor shows and, um, yeah, I was really happy with this brand because, you know, as women, we have skinny and pretty shoved down our throats since, you know, the time we were out of the womb, basically, we're basically told yeah. our worth is defined by how skinny and pretty we are. And a lot of brands will, you know, their clothes will be, they'll size it really, really small. And I've watched so many women have total body dysmorphia issues because of it. Yep. And, you know, when I got, you know, my inventory, it was all the stuff was actually a little bit big. And I was like, this is perfect. This isn't going to mess with anybody's mental health. And this is like sized appropriately. And, you know, I was just, I was really happy about that. And, you know, the colors match my paintings perfectly. And you can go on the website and see all the paintings, you know, individually, there's like a little art gallery as well. Um, so that was that was really cool. And and what is that website, Elizabeth? It's um legalleries.com slash en slash Elizabeth You have to have my name at the end of it because other artists um are through legalleries as well. And if you just put legalleries.com, it'll just bring you to their main website and not mine. So Good, good. Now, what makes this company environmentally friendly? Um, a lot of it is recycled um, material. And um, you can go on the website and it'll tell you exactly what the stuff is made of. Okay, good enough. Let's talk about 
your journey to get there from prison to your own business and selling a clothesline because that's got to be exciting. Yeah. I had a journey with Boat Crab Rehab myself, and it was a disaster. And well, it was, I'm, a, disa I'm it was actually... a disaster for me in Texas. <laughs> it depends really? what state so you're in. Did yeah. you go more than once? I, um, so I did Boat Rehab up in Maine, and they were amazing. They, they, showed me how to make a business plan. They showed me, like, they gave me a financial advisor. Like, I didn't know anything about a business plan. Like, I was a drug dealer. Like, I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> um, they literally, like, walked me through everything I had to do. And they even showed me how to write um, a proposal to get a grant. And I ended up getting a $10,000 grant. And I was like, oh, my God, I've never gotten this much money legally before. And, you know, it was great. <laughs> but down in Texas, they're useless. Like, I mean, if you want to uh, go work at a, at a job at McDonald's, they'll help you fill out an application basically, but they're not going to help you the way that, you know, Maine did. It really depends what state you're in. And if you're in a blue state, it's probably going to be a lot better than a red state. Yeah. I'm in Oregon and, and it, it kind of is, uh, interesting maybe it's the county that i'm in i'm not sure but I, i'm actually going to tackle it again because i have a lot more information and i'm loaded for it I, i've got a whole stack of information here from my last journey i documented it well and Good. It, it really is disgusting how i was treated and you know basically I called in for an appointment to talk about the way I was treated. And as the lady was walking in to talk to me, her words was, I really don't have time for this. Wow. That is the kind of thing that needs to be wrung out and put to dry. Because especially where I live. I witness it all the time. It's systematic. And, yeah. you know, all of them know what they're doing. And it's kind of this ego with yeah. them. And really I'm better than you. They, yes. They, yeah, it really upsets me. And I can go off on a cookie on this one. But my point here is, when when we have programs like that, the administration of those programs need to be equal access to all, and they're Absolutely. not. And and I admire what Maine has done for you because that's what all states should do. And right. really, that's one of the journeys I'm on right now to advocate for those special needs being met in Right. Uh, a safe way, you know, because I can tell you they put my life at risk during this process. And there's going to be a lot coming out on that. But I, I really encourage you to keep pushing because what you're doing is so important. It, it makes a difference. And when you can tell people, yes, it does work. It gives them hope, and right. that is so needed, even for people like me. You know, those depressive 
episodes, those bouts of I'm yeah. not worth anything. We all have to fight that. And we yeah. all have to come together to protect each other from Absolutely. those people that don't really understand it. Because all right. they see is maybe, oh, you're manipulating, you're doing this, you're doing that. You don't understand the thing that you're right. saying. And it really, I've had a lot of time to cool down. And when I first started podcasting and speaking out, I couldn't do that. I was just foaming at the mouth and right. mad and angry. And to get collective and calm down enough, did you have that happen with you at all? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, especially when you have like an entire institution, you know, coming for you. Mm -hmm and treating you differently. Like I've had my mental health weaponized against me, you know, Ooh. to the extreme. You know, I was, I, at the time I was diagnosed with bipolar, come to find out I'm actually high functioning autistic. So none of their medications are gonna work for me. In fact, most of them put yeah. me in psychosis. So, you know, like I said, when that Don Poulin, that sergeant was telling me to kill myself, I was already being put on an antidepressant which was putting me in psychosis. I was in solitary hallucinating that I was in my old apartment and I have an officer telling me to kill myself. Like, this is not how you should be treating people with mental health issues. And you know, it's so easy to just be like, oh, they have mental health issues. I shouldn't take them seriously. Yeah. You know what? That, just cause I have mental health issues doesn't mean I'm stupid. In fact, I'm, right. my brain processes things a lot faster than <laughs> you. Just because I can't control my emotions all the time doesn't mean I'm not smarter than you. And, you know, I've just watched it happen, you know, and especially with women and BIPOC, like I don't take Western mental health, you know, the DSM-5, I don't take it seriously yeah. anymore. You know, I went through 20 years of doing what I was told and taking these medications that only kept making me worse. And finally, when I said, no, I'm not gonna do this anymore, I'm not gonna listen to you, they started putting it in, you know, my notes oh, she's being defiant. Right. She doesn't want to get better. You know, all that stuff. No, I did everything you all were telling me to do. And I have scars on my arm to prove it because you put me in psychosis so many times. Like I, I almost killed myself. Like, and it's not that I was looking for sympathy or anything. I was literally trying to stop the hallucinations. It wasn't even that I was trying to kill myself. I was literally trying to bring myself out of psychosis. And that was the only way, like, I don't know why that was the only way for me, but it, it just was, you know, doing something destructive to myself, you know, brings you out of that for whatever reason. And, you know, you know, us neurodivergence, you know, we're, if people would just allow us the space, you know, to have, you know, to do things our own way and process things our own way in an environment we thrive in, we could be so much more beneficial to society. You know, we're great artists. We are great inventors. You know, we think outside the box because we don't fit inside of your box. And you know what? That's okay. Like I spent so many years like trying to, you know, be like everybody else. And I'm like, no, you know what? I don't want to be like these people. Right. Like, you know, and <laughs> the whole, you know, you watch that happen with Britney Spears. You know, they yes. enslaved yes. that woman and extorted that woman you know, just, just to profit off of her suffering, and, you know, while I didn't have that happen to me, you know, on such a personal level with my family, 
I had the government do it to me. You know, they'd rather throw us all the weirdos away and, you know, not have to deal with us, you know, and just profit off of, you know, our free labor. And, you know, it's just disgusting. And the DSM-5, it's misogynistic. You know, I mean, the second a woman is brave enough to speak up, you know, they're giving her an oppositional defiant, you know, diagnosis. And, you know, the, or the second, you know, they love to give black people, you know, a schizophrenia diagnosis when they don't really have it because it's easier to lock them up. And so I don't take these DSM-5, you know, seriously anymore. I just don't. Yeah, it, it's so, so complex what you're fighting against. And that's probably why a lot of people just say uh, enough, because those big systematic problems we need to approach together. And we right. really need to get behind the individuals fighting for that and let them know, yes, we are in commonality and we oppose what you're doing. Yeah. It's the only way things are going to change because they're coming after you. They're coming after me. And it's not at the same time. They're going to systematically yeah. pick you off and then come over, tick this person off. And it's one at a time. Believe it or not, you know, I, I don't do the Democrat. I don't do the Republican. I no, do the I American. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, George Washington... You know, he was opposed to party systems. And, you know, I'm opposed to a lot of government anymore yeah. because how destructive it can be. Right. Limited government, the way it was supposed to be, and get off of this prison planet thing because you're right. They're making more and more cell blocks as we speak. And, yeah. and it's modular in design, so it can just be stacked, and you're yep. the next target. See, so oh. if we're not on top of it, they are going to make a law that you're going to break, and you're going to be put in one of those boxes. Yeah, it's over the pandemic. Similar. Yeah, over the pandemic, all these prisons were taking out PPP loans to expand their wings yes. to add more beds. Yes. <laughs> and then the corporation showed up and said, we'll buy all the prisons as long as they stay 90% capacity. Oh, like, are you serious? <laughs> yes, it's dangerous. You know, private prisons and, you know, that's making it a monopoly right there. Right. And, and you have, we, you have we judges. See what Yes. Yeah, you have judges that own the prisons who are sentencing people yes. to that prison and they're profiting off of that person's incarceration. That should be a conflict of interest, but for whatever reason, it's yes. not. You know, I could speak with you for hours and hours and we should probably invite you back to have a second <laughs> round with us because there's so much more to cover here that we didn't even get a chance to cover. Do you have a call to action for our people? Yeah, um, definitely. Well, September 1st is that strike. You know, I, I am all for this strike September 1st. Um, I don't know if it's going to be, your, this episode is going to be out by then, but um, we should be right. I, I, was, I was writing the UN 
and, you know, complaining about, you know, the systemic crimes against humanity in this country. And that's what, what we should be doing. And, you know, that um, TikTok challenge where they, where people were reporting these churches to the IRS for trying to get people to vote a certain way, you know, I'm all for that too. Um, but yeah, just like, if you, if you don't, if you have a clean record, volunteer at some of these jails, go in and talk to some of these inmates and see them as human beings. And, you know, if, if they have like complaints, they're not going to, they're going to get retaliated if they go through the jail system. But if you were to take a complaint and bring it to, you know, some of your state representatives and show them what's going on, you know, that might do something. Yes. Yeah. You know, actually, they have to respond to you. So, you know, if you write your representative, they will respond to you. And I've had some good experiences going through those channels. They do work. You've got to use them. Yep. Do this the right way. You know, this is where most people mess up because they let the system get them so irritated that they don't approach it in the right mannerism. And right. really, that's what we need to educate people more on, getting the right approach to these complaints. And it will change. So, yeah. Well, when I, before I like started doing this, you know, I was like, well, why would these people listen to me? I'm just, you know, yeah, fresh out of prison, a felon, recovering addict. And then I'm like, well, why wouldn't they listen to me? I'm their failed statistic and right. I've been dragged through the trenches. I know what needs to be changed. And so, you know, if a lot of these people are up in their ivory tower of privilege and they don't see the problems, you know, down here with the people. So, you know, they can't fix something if they don't know what exactly is broke. And so you have to at least give them a chance to fix it and address it. So um, I am on Instagram and TikTok. My handles are, it's the same on both. It's EPM underscore art underscore 1111. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get bills federally passed because I really want that PREA, you know, loophole that they are using to just, you know, run right over inmates. And that creates other problems too. Like I requested my medical records. I couldn't get those either. So my insurance made me go on this medication that put me in psychosis before because they said, well, we can't prove that you were already on it because my word isn't good enough apparently. You know, because I have mental health issues, even though I know which medications I've took before, like this, this is a problem and this is what needs to be addressed. Um, the other bill that I got passed, well, it didn't get passed in the state of Maine. It only passed in the city of Bangor. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but these landlords were charging these outrageous application fees and getting like three times the rent and not even renting the apartment. It was just free money to them from the people and they're not even renting these properties because they're getting, they don't even have to turn the water on or electric, whatever on. They, they're just getting all this money for application fees and not even looking at the application. So I made a huge deal about this because the homeless problem just exploded over the pandemic. And you know, like yeah. me and my fiance, we applied over dozens of places and we paid over a thousand dollars for them just to tell us no. 
And you know, yeah. for felons especially, it's really hard. And if you have bad yeah. credit, it's even harder. So, you know, they passed a uh, tenant bill of rights in Bangor, Maine, saying that you cannot charge an application fee unless if a lease is signed. And that's fair. You're you don't you're not extorting the people anymore, you know, and it's like banks with these overdraft fees. Like the middle class yeah. disappeared since that got invented in the 90s. And the scumbag CEO that invented it named his brand new yacht overdraft. Like you're extorting the people. You don't do this to the rich. You're only doing this to the people who can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to it, you know, and and I, I do. I want to invite you back, Elizabeth because we should talk again about some more of these systematic problems and the approaches that people should take. Absolutely. So uh, do you have a website again? What was that? Um, it's HTTP colon slash slash www.legalleries.com slash en slash Elizabeth dot Mikotowicz. Um, but the best way, if you want to like get involved, hit me up on Instagram or TikTok. Um, absolutely. Okay. Um, EPM underscore art underscore 1111. And I have a book coming out called No Justice, Just Us. Um, I'm in the final editing stages. Um, it's about my journey through the federal prison system. Um, it's not about my crime because um, <laughs> you can't do that. Um, but it's about my recovery, how I turned everything around. Um, and it fully exposes the prison system um, for what it is, how it's one big money pit. Um, yeah. <laughs> Make sure you reach out and let us know so we can have you back on and discuss that book. Absolutely. But as for now, I want to say thank you for this awesome interview with you and being part of the Dead America podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.